I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm lucky to be joined on the line now by Benjamin Lewis, who is co-founder and COO of the One Health Company. Ben, thanks for joining us. Hi, Carl. Thank you very much. It's a tremendous honor. All right. So I'm going to give our listeners the URL. It's it's long, but straightforward, unambiguous. So <laughs> the URL is the sentence or the statement, the one health company. No hyphens, no spaces, just the one health company dot com. All right, Ben, give us the elevator pitch for the one health company. Okay. So the, so the one health company is changing the way that animal testing is done. And we're totally turning on its head from something that actually hurts animals to something that actually benefits animals. So rather than taking animals in the laboratory that are otherwise healthy, giving them the disease and then testing on them, what we do is we work with pet parents whose, whose dogs and cats are naturally sick, and we pair them into pharmaceutical trials in an effort to try to make them better. And the best part is we actually pay for everything, and they're being seen by the world's best veterinarians. And it turns out that these data end up saving pharma a tremendous amount of money on the back end. So that's uh, that's one health company in a nutshell. All right, great. So yeah, let's just get the context a little bit. So we're talking about about the development, pharmaceutical drug development, and so these are going to be regulated compounds typically that are that eventually we hope will will be used to improve human health. Maybe you could walk our listeners through the status quo. How does the current system work at a company like a Pfizer, or a Merck, or or a BMS? Absolutely. So, so the status quo, before testing something on, on human beings, you have to go through at least two rounds of animal testing. The problem with kind of the status quo of animal testing is that 92% of, of uh, drugs that actually work in traditional animal models end up failing in people in uh, late clinical stages. And that's why the average cost of developing new drugs is about $2.6 billion. And the, the primary, I guess, reason for this 92% failure rate is actually just crappy animal models. It's really difficult to induce, to essentially make an animal sick that is otherwise healthy. And this particularly applies to cancer. So what's really interesting is our pet dogs are diagnosed with about 6 million cancers per year. And there's only three FDA-approved therapies to treat them. So veterinary medicine, unfortunately, is about 30 years behind when it comes to, uh, to veterinary medicine. And this is kind of a way to actually provide cutting-edge therapies to pets for free in, in an effort to actually learn um, very specific questions that human pharmaceutical, has, human pharmaceutical companies have um, about their drugs. So what's really cool is we can bring that number down from like 92% um, into the mid-30s, mm-hmm. um, which is a tremendous, tremendous um, change from, from the status quo of the industry. Yeah, so... Uh, just drilling down a little bit more in the process, this would be this would apply in the what's called preclinical phase. Is that right? So it'd be before it got to the standard FDA phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. So this is actually interesting. So at first we thought we were exclusively going to work in the preclinical phase mm-hmm. before going into people, but thus far, you know, in the past year and a half of business, we've exclusively been utilized in the clinical phases. Hmm to answer very specific questions that, that pharma has about their drugs, whether it's, you know, what type of cancer, you know, uh, is it angiosarcoma or ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. you know, a, a drug is, is be- works better in, or 
you know, should you take this drug first or this drug second? Mm-hmm. And what, what's really great about this is we're not testing anything in people's pets that isn't already being, isn't already either FDA approved or being evaluated in people. So we, we kind of um, avoid this kind of moral loophole of, of calling something traditional animal testing. Yeah, I see. So so let me just, I, I did a little bit of work in the farm industry, but it's been a long time. And my recollection is that the three phases, the three clinical phases are the first is, is the drug toxic in us uh, in healthy volunteers? That's in humans. Uh, the second is, does it work on on a small sample of people with the target disease or with the condition? And then the third is sort of a broad based combination of safety and efficacy in a large sample of humans. So it sounds like it wouldn't apply in the first step, which is this isn't really about toxicity. Is it about exploring alternative indications for a particular drug, and does it fit in that second phase of clinical trials? So that, that's a great question. So actually, most of the things we test are either in phase 2B, mm-hmm. which is you know looking at efficacy in a small cohort, mm-hmm. or actually phase 3. So believe it or not, even when some uh, a lot of drug companies can actually make it to phase 2B and, and phase 3 without having answered very particular questions, mm. it might be around dosing, it might be around indication. Uh, they might be looking for a label extension, for example. And it's um, really difficult to recruit for human clinical trials just because I'm going to say the relative scarcity of cancer, which sounds a bit controversial, but yeah. there's about 1.5 million cases of human cancer and about 6 million in dogs. So we have about four times the amount of cancer in dogs than we do in the, than, than we do in the human population. And what's really amazing is we don't actually have HIPAA. So we can actually recruit a lot easier in veterinary clinical trials than we can in human clinical trials, yeah. and obviously it's a lot cheaper. Yeah, HIPAA being the privacy the privacy regulations around around human trials and human medical care generally. Okay, so I hate to be nerdy about this, but I I still want to make sure I understand. So um, so does this mean that the FDA will use results of animal studies? in deciding on, on approvals, on, on, on passing phases of, of the FDA clinical trials? Or is it really more of an exploratory technique to guide scientists in which additional trials they will do in humans? So this is, it's more supplemental information, mm-hmm. like the, the latter option that you presented. So these drugs have already gone through what, what's called the IND stage. Yeah. So they've already been approved by the FDA to be tested in humans. Yeah. And that, that's actually part of our process because we don't want to test something in, in somebody's pet, which is a family member, that hasn't already been approved to be tested in, in people just because, you know, the, the last thing we want to do is start hurting, uh, I guess, having strange uh, toxicities that we can't anticipate. So these data aren't actually included in IND because we're post-IND. Yeah. And the FDA doesn't really, you know, at, at, at the clinical stage, they're, they're generally not concerned about um, animal data. And we, we kind of fall into this this uh, this gray zone that's totally overlooked by the FDA. So mm-hmm. it's not animal data, mm-hmm. and it's not human clinical data. Mm-hmm. So most of these data are just used internally by pharmaceutical companies yeah. um, for kind of go no go decisions. Yeah, and and I I get why. I mean, it's very hard to do exploratory studies in humans, and so I can see why I can see why this is a very attractive proposition. It it hinges, however, I, I suppose, on two assumptions. One is that around toxicity, and that is that something that's not toxic in humans will also not be toxic in, in pets. 
And I suppose one way you get around that is if it's a terminal disease, you, you worry less about that. But maybe speak first to that. What is the toxicity going that direction from it's safe in humans? Is it likely, is it highly likely to be safe in animals? Or are these terminal cases where you worry less about that? So uh, it's something we actually worry, something we worry about uh, tremendously. Mm-hmm. That being said, so before you know, something's being, uh, you can test something in a human being, it already goes through rodent models. So, you know, mice and rats mm-hmm. typically, it goes through, it's going to sound sad, but healthy dog models to yeah. evaluate toxicity. And then it goes through monkey models generally as well. Mm-hmm. So we've already tested this in dogs and, and two other animal species, ah, and generally humans as well. So we, we kind of um, have a pretty good understanding by the time we put something in an animal or in, in somebody's pet dog, of the of the safety and toxicity profile. Yeah, and that's interesting. We actually yeah. turn down more drugs than than we accept. Yeah, um, into our trials for yeah. this reason. Yeah. Okay. So that's the toxicity question. The second question, of course, is is um, is what's the likelihood that if it's that's effective in a dog, it's effective in a human. And you started out by but with the proposition that's for example the rodent models ninety two percent of drugs that that pass the rodent model actually don't work in humans. But that must be much lower for dogs. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. So kind of looking at it in reverse, the number of veterinary drugs today that first went, that, that are actually reverse translated from people into mm-hmm. the veterinary market is about 100% of the drugs. Mm-hmm. There's only one or two examples, you know, mainly flea and tick preventatives of therapies that are developed exclusively for the veterinary market that didn't come back from the human market. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, you know, the, the translational fidelity or, or if something, you know, essentially if, if we say something works in an animal, the likelihood of it working in a human being is almost one-to-one. Wow. Uh, which is quite remarkable. Right. So it's, And obviously vice versa. Yeah. Man's best friend. Sounds like we're very close. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable how, how yeah. conserved the genetics are literally down, you know, literally, particularly in cancer, yeah. literally down to the, the genetics, the gene expression profile. You can't actually tell the difference sometimes between a human tumor and a dog tumor. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Well, we're going to get into how you actually do this because it sounds like a logistical I mean, it sounds like a huge logistical problem, and I guess that's what you get paid to do. But the first question I've got is, where did this idea come from? So give us the origin story. So the origin story. So I guess I should say I I myself have been in a clinical trial. Um, I took part. I had an ankle injury, and I took part in a a clinical trial, which was really uh, enlightening. Mm Mm-hmm. And my dog has actually taken part in a clinical trial, and that's somewhat of, of the inspiration. So my dog uh, had a very aggressive bone cancer called osteosarcoma. Hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a type of bone cancer shared by children and, and dogs, um, and they're literally identical, um, which is quite remarkable. So my dog uh, developed osteosarcoma and uh, had about, was given a, a survival time of, of about three months. We enrolled him in a really cool immunotherapy trial, and remarkably, he lived three and a half years after that. Um, so that was kind of that was part of it. And, and, and Ben, let me inter- let me interrupt you on that. Was was were you able? Did you have some special access, or was was this literally a trial intended? It, was it a trial that was doing what what your company is now doing, but but maybe patched together some way, or or did you somehow finagle your way to get your dog to use a human human drug? How did that actually come <laughs> about? Yeah. 
So, so this actually was, it was a clinical trial, a translational clinical trial, mm-hmm. that they recruited, I believe, 13 dogs into to evaluate a human therapy. Mm. So it's, it's exactly what we were doing. Yeah. The issue was it took several years to recruit these 13 dogs. And that, that was kind of the, the genesis of the idea was, I, was we realized, wait a sec, this works so well. Um, and it seems like something pharma wants, but what they, what they are not happy with is how long it takes to recruit you know, a, a small cohort of dogs. So yeah. 13 dogs in three years yeah. is just not attractive to a pharmaceutical company, which kind of, uh, you know, we, we kind of uh, validated the thesis, went to speak to a whole bunch of uh, pharma executives, asked them, is this something you'd be interested in? You know, more predictive data, more humane, you know, gentle, and actually something that, that, that helps. Yeah. And, you know, and we almost unanimously heard back that, yes, this, this is something we'd like to get into. Unfortunately, there's no kind of business entity that, that does this. Mm. They, they had been going through veterinary schools across the country and most of these veterinary schools don't necessarily play nice together yeah. so if you have a something you know a, a trial going at one school they're not recruiting from another school at the same time mm. so we put together a network of 110 sites and now we can recruit even rare diseases in a very short amount of time that's interesting to pharma yeah ben i want to underscore just one thing you said about the origin story because i think it's a pretty interesting pattern you discovered in your own life a clunky process. It was a process that was being patched together in an inefficient way, but it was your own experience, which is you had gone through this clinical trial or you'd help you dad your pet in a in a clinical trial. And then you recognized that there was an opportunity for a new entity to come in and eliminate some friction in that market. And and that's a fairly standard template. So those entrepreneurs out there, aspiring entrepreneurs out there, look for band-aids, look for kludgy processes that are being patched together out there in the world that are remarkably inefficient, and often those give rise to opportunities to do something a little more structured. So let's turn to that question, Ben. What What is it, how does your system actually work? Actually, let's start with who your customer is. Your customer is primarily uh, the drug company or, well, let me just ask you, who, who's, who's your primary customer? So our primary customer are human pharmaceutical companies. Um, so I guess we're today, you know, we're, we're under two years old, but we're mm-hmm. already preferred providers at two of the top five human pharma companies. Okay. Uh, and, and then, and, and, and what exactly do you guys do now? What is the, what is the process that you go through for that customer? So the process is, uh, is arduous, although a lot of it at this point is automated, which, mm-hmm. is, which is great. So we, we start with, you know, uh, an investigator who has a question at a, at a pharmaceutical company. You know, mm-hmm. they might have one or two, you know, lead compounds that have already been evaluated, and they'd, they'd like to maybe choose which lead compound to move forward, or you know, which two combinations of therapies, you know, both of both of which are approved as monotherapies, but you know, which combinations of a handful of therapies they'd like to continue with um, in clinical trials, or so on and so forth. So they'll come to us with a question. Our team will then work with them and we'll, we'll develop a, a clinical trial protocol that's uh, mutually acceptable. It then goes through our animal welfare committee, which is probably the strictest part of the entire process. So we have a whole bunch of bioethicists and mm-hmm. animal ethicists and animal welfare um, you know, advocates. And I'm talking about true advocates that really, really you know, uh, take this to heart. And they work for you. It, You've retained them. So they, some of them work for us and then some of them work for you know, other groups. So uh-huh. think of the, 
the most ardent animal welfare organizations in the world. I, I don't want to name names. Yeah, but we can imagine. Yeah. Um, and that are generally against pharmaceutical or the, the traditional pharmaceutical research and development process. Mm-hmm. And they actually um, contribute to this process as well. So then, you know, once a protocol, you know, is blessed by all sides, we'll then move forward with site setup where we actually activate the sites and then we'll deploy um, our electronic data capture system and our API that allows us to go in to the actual back end of the of the veterinary practice and help identify patients that might be eligible. From there, you know, we start the trial and the veterinarian, um, the, the principal investigator veterinarian on site helps recruit patients and actually helps, they're the ones who are administering the therapy mm-hmm. and uh, evaluating patients on the back end. They enter this data into our electronic data capture system, um, which does a lot of analysis and, and shares these data back with a pharmaceutical company. And if there's any adverse events or severe adverse events, all, all of these are adjudicated within 24 hours to, uh, to determine if it's you know something related to the disease or if it's something related to the drug. Mm-hmm. You know, so a good example there is, you know, should we stop a trial if an animal, um, let's say, dies? So this, thus far, this has never happened. You know, the question is, okay, did the animal die because of the drug or did the animal die because it was hit by a car? Mm-hmm. Let's just say, okay, you know, this one was hit by a car. Okay, we can rule that out. Or, you know, did they have some type of cytokine release storm that we're concerned about? Maybe we should, um, you know, keep closer eye on these animals or should we stop the protocol entirely? So that's, uh, that's kind of how, how we work. And that's, uh, I guess, I don't know if that was clear, but yeah, that's, clear. that's uh, what, what pharma pays us for. Yeah. So, and and I guess a- just one follow-up question, uh, Ben, which is how, how, how much of that, of the management of the clinical trial do you guys get into? Are you doing data analysis? Are you literally sending sending drugs out? Or are you essentially a partner to either a third party uh, uh, clinical trial uh, management company or uh, somebody within the, the pharma company who's actually running the trial? So I guess remarkably, it's, it's us from, you know, from beginning to end. Wow. We're the ones who are distributing the therapies. We're the ones who are Sometimes even running flow cytometry mm-hmm. and you know collecting PBMCs, um, we run the the genomics actually in house, and we're the ones who have a, an incredible data analytics team. Yeah, actually part of them come come from the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, I was remiss in, in not pointing out Ben that you're a Wharton alum from 2015. So that's uh, that's uh, I, yeah I forgot to, to to take credit for for your and connection. also potentially relevant here is I, I went to University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine as well. Although I can't claim that I graduated. I did three and a half years, although uh, this idea kind of took me out of school and I haven't returned yet. Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's just go there right now uh, before we run out of time. So you have a really interesting background, and we won't start quite at the beginning, but the one really notable thing on your, on your resume is you were an Olympic athlete in 2004. So maybe take us from, uh, from, from college and being an Olympian to, to being an entrepreneur. Walk us through a little bit of that journey. Absolutely. So I guess um, I was an Olympian in the 2004 uh, Olympic Games in Athens, Greece. I was actually captain of uh, one of the teams in kayaking, which was my sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, After graduating with a degree in bioengineering, I worked briefly uh, as an investment banker before moving over to work with my brother-in-law in in a veterinary medical device company, Mm -hmm. and then ultimately going to veterinary school, which had been my passion since I was a child. I always wanted to be a veterinarian. Yeah. Yeah. I went to veterinary school at University of Pennsylvania, 
And after three and a half years, I walked across the street to do a dual degree with um, with Warden in their healthcare management. Um, I guess uh, is in the healthcare management uh, division, and that was an incredible experience. And while at Warden, actually, my learning teammate and I went down to Brazil for spring break, and we started up a, a veterinary distribution company mm-hmm. um, in Brazil, which. Brazil, many people don't know, it's, it's the second largest animal health market in the entire world. And we essentially started up the, the biggest, largest uh, B2B distributor of animal health supplies in South America. That's a nice, so that, that nice a, spring break project. Most people were in Florida nice drinking, and you were starting a company. Yeah, so uh, what what's, was supposed to be a two-week spring break turned into about uh, three and a half years. Yeah. I came back to Warden, finished up. And I was taking Laura Huang's uh, Management 801 class, and we had to have a we had to write up a business plan. And this was an idea. This um, um, the One Health company was an idea that I had, I had a, a few years back after my dog was in a trial. Mm-hmm. And we uh, I put together a business plan along with the team, and a lot of the team, you know, they went on to get banking jobs and consulting jobs. And I stuck with it, and we're still around almost two years later. And I must say that the team is unbelievable. So having you know, been captain of an Olympic team, I've worked with very high-performing individuals. Mm-hmm. But at the One Health Company, it's a true honor to, uh, to be working with the caliber of, of people we have today. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great story, uh, Ben. Maybe you can tell me a little bit. You, you know, you you had this idea. You're doing it in Professor Huang's uh, class, business plan. You're writing a business plan. At at what point did you realize that this was potentially a big idea? And and maybe I should ask you, how big an idea can it be in terms of the I don't know revenue or impact or however you want to think about it? Yeah. So I think you know. We kind of see ourselves as a triple bottom line type company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, revenue is, is, is important as is kind of social impact. So um, this can be a billion dollar idea um, very conservatively. Mm. We can, you know, uh, our, our, our most recent valuation, it's not there, but I think we can get there relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. So the nice thing about, you know, just uh, I guess to put things in perspective, uh, and the NIH published a paper demonstrating that Comparative trials, the type that we run, save an average of $117 million per drug. Mm. So we're saving pharma a tremendous amount of money by providing um, more relevant and actually more predictable data around their their drugs so that they have less false starts and they know what to prioritize. So, you know, it doesn't take that many trials for us to be a tremendous, tremendous company. Yeah. And, And we're definitely on the way. And that being said, you know, there's there's so much disease in the world and we're actually trying to cure the disease. So um, rather than creating more disease artificially. So from a social impact, you know, we're really providing access to pet owners uh, to really cool cutting edge, both therapies as well as diagnostics. So we have trials running just for example, at um, Johns Hopkins university hospital, the human hospital where, where dogs are literally walking through the back door of Johns Hopkins to receive, um, remarkably expensive uh, imaging, you know, on the world's most powerful PET CT scanner. Wow. So, you know, we're really bringing a new level of, of care in veterinary medicine, both on the, the diagnostic side as well as the therapeutic side, because most of these therapeutics, you know, it's not uncommon for a pharma company to spend $125,000 per dog with us. So it's quite remarkable. Wow. Um, ben, we just have a minute left, but I wonder if you could speak just a minute to financing. It, and I guess my question is, it took us about 
eight minutes or so to get to the bottom of how this works. It's not a trivially simple idea, at least it wasn't for me to grasp. How hard was it to find investors who got it? How, 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 what kind of project was that for you? So that, that's definitely a project that's still in the works. So it's remarkably difficult because we don't fit into any like, clear investment thesis. Right. We're not a veterinary company. We're not a human CRO, which is actually kind of unfundable at the early mm-hmm. stages. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not human. We're kind of human healthcare. So it's been really difficult um, to find financing. So in the beginning, we're actually just self-financed. Um, and just recently, we've had more kind of institutional investors come in, which has been a you know a tremendous honor. Mm-hmm. And I think we're finally rounding this corner where, where people are starting to get it. It's, it's as you mentioned, it's it's not easy to explain, particularly in an elevator pitch, or you know, in, in the thirty minutes that you're sitting down with uh, with a, a VC. So it's, it's been difficult. Um, thankfully, our team, you know, is composed of of some real experts. I mean, our, our CEO has had something like six IPOs. Our our chief medical officer was the former chief medical officer of Athena Health, um, and then the team just keeps going from there. Wow. So, All right. You know, we, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been difficult, but we're getting there. All right. Well, Ben, we're, we're out of time, but thanks so much for making the time. It's a great story. Thank you very much. All right. For Can't more information, thanks. For, for more information about The One Health Company, just go to www.theonehealthcompany.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.